What did you eat for breakfast? Ooh, it was a bagel with cream cheese and salmon. Welcome to Music on Your Own Terms, the podcast that aims to help musicians develop an entrepreneurial mindset through interviews, as well as discussing resources, concepts, successes, and more. Providing a platform to talk about negative emotions such as anxiety and depression in order to help overcome them in the context of music and reduce the social stigma. This is episode 108. Sponsored by the Skinny Armadillo Printing Company in Fort Worth, Texas, offering screen printing, embroidery, laser engraving, and a range of other services. Go to theskinnyarmadillo.com to learn how they can help you get your merch business to the next level. If you enjoy the podcast, there are a couple of ways you can show your support. Go to the store at store.musiconyourownterms.com and buy some merch. And at the same time, sign up for the mailing list to stay connected. Subscribe to the YouTube channel to get extra content you won't find anywhere else. And finally, head over to Podcast Magazine's website at podcastmagazine.com forward slash hot 50 and vote for music on your own terms in their hot 50 monthly chart. Joining me in this interview is Australian-born, New York-based singer, songwriter, and entrepreneur Eden James. We hear about his first foray into music learning drum rudiments in the school marching band, then picking up a guitar and starting to write songs as a young teen. We hear about Eden's journey to the UK, and then winning a visa lottery to live in the US at the suggestion of his then-girlfriend. Eden shares a lot of valuable insight about his experience as an indie artist, licensing his songs to a major label, and getting a number one hit in Greece, as well as hiring A-list session musicians to record his latest album and setting up his own record label. Welcome to another episode of the podcast. The Jay, joining me from New York is Eden James. How are you doing? Very well, sir. Um, thanks for having me. Glad to be here. You're very welcome. And uh, regular listeners will have heard a song by Eden on Agile Wade's podcast episode not too long ago. So my first question is, who is Eden James? Ah, I ask myself that every day. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I am, oh, I go by a a plethora of labels, I suppose. But let's see, for this this situation, um, artist entrepreneur, I guess, is the the best title. And do you know who gave me that title? Um, It was Dave Roundtree, the drummer from Blur. Oh, wow. I had the good fortune of hanging out with him last year uh, in France at the Medium Festival. Mm-hmm. And, and he said, Eden, you're an artist entrepreneur. That's, that's generally what you do. And, and any artist who runs their own business as a, as a business um, is pretty much that label. It's because they have to think of all these extra ways of, basically it's a DIY artist, right? Mm-hmm. And a DIY artist is an artist entrepreneur because we're all looking for these ways to um, to be creative in our business, which is the definition of you know, or a definition of entrepreneur. So I guess I'm an artist entrepreneur, which includes singer songwriter, uh, music producer, record label owner, publisher, publishing label owner, which I'm doing now, singer, performer, guitarist, mm-hmm. 
musician, uh, poet, lyricist. So yeah, so the many, many things, which I enjoy all of them. But more, most recently, I think I'm really uh, enjoying the fact that my record label is, is off the ground and um, I'm looking at signing new acts. So that's a lot of fun. Uh, the record label is Dandy Ram Records. It's new. It, cool. I'm the first label, I'm the first artist on my label and I'm looking nice. for new artists. That's fantastic. So, yeah, I mean, just before we got started, you were talking about how you grew up in Australia. So what prompted the move to the U.S.? And um, we can also touch base on why you decided to move to England at, at one point. Yeah. So how that's a good question. How did I find myself in the U.S.? At, well, I was living in London uh, with my girlfriend at the time, and she asked me, how would you like to take your music career to the U.S.? And I said, yeah, well, it's the biggest market in the biggest music market in the world. And that was at the time it was early noughties. And I said, yeah, that sounds like a great idea. So she entered us both into the U.S. green card lottery. Okay. And it was a diversity visa lottery, which means um, any nation or any nationality that the U.S. does not have a lot of in its professional fields it's open to those nations, which, which, you know, um, immediately strikes out the nations that the U.S. were, were built on, in the European nations, um, England, Scotland, Ireland, um, Italy, all the basically all the sort of popular European nationalities which built the U.S. were out. Mm. Um, Australia was not on that list, and it was it, it still is considered a diversity nation um, when it comes to governmental diversity visas. So interesting. So I I entered that and I won the green card lottery for that. But incidentally, they give out fifty thousand of those. Well, they did. They gave out fifty thousand a year mm. diversity visas. So that's you know that's a lot, <laughs> right? So I but fortunately I won that. So I moved from London to to New York, and I've been in New York now for nine years. Okay, cool. Did did the girlfriend follow? Did she win as well? Well, she did not win as well. So we looked we looked at um, how we could both do this together, and we really tried. We gave it our best on how we could stay together and do the move. Mm. Um, it it didn't work out, and we you know we tried to actually do the marriage thing to see if we could get onto the visa there, but that that didn't work out either. So look, I thank her for that great idea, and uh, you know we had history together but she is mm. uh living in australia now okay so yeah and and so i'm imagining i've been listening to your music imagining um the track about finsbury park and um walking by the subway uh, walking by the railway station at night is all true yeah that's that's all that's all you, true you, your lyric your lyrics seem very literal like very very literal yeah yeah so it, it is your lyrics generally true to life then they're basically stories about your experiences or I, I like to think more so now than they have been in the past um but that album was a very um, honest autobiographical album and that song in particular was about that relationship and, and what we experienced um in finsbury park at the time in london i, I would not say I'm, I'm literal in all of my writing um there's a lot of a lot of tracks and a lot of um, writing, which is quite vague and, and, and more abstract. Mm. 
But I, I personally feel that I'd rather be more literal. Um, uh, when, when, it, when it works, it really lands mm-hmm. because people connect with it. But it's, when it, it's difficult to make it land, um, you know, as in to, to, to really engage and, and make that poetry uh, engaging. But I, I, I like to try it and I like to do it. And, uh, and you know, Springsteen and Dylan are mm-hmm. big uh, influences in, in that um, aspect. Uh, the honesty of their autobiographical writing is something that I do appreciate. So, yeah. Awesome. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up Springsteen. I mean, first of all, I, I assume we've read the, the his biography. Which which one? Uh Oh, I didn't know there were more than one. So, so I read Point Blank, I think was one, um, but I haven't read one that he's uh, an autobiography. I, I haven't read his own. Okay, it's that one. Okay. Yeah, it's it's really, really good. Really well written. That that leads me into talking about the album These the Streets. It sounds very Springsteen-esque. So was that a deliberate like homage to him? Or was it kind of, hey, I, I really like this stuff. I'm going to write in the style of. Or was it just, was that where your head was at and it just happened that way? Definitely where my heart and head were at. Um, I, was, it was going through, I was going through a big Springsteen phase, um, just sort of coming out of my, my Bowie inspiration phase, uh, which went on for quite a long time. Mm. And, and and then after the Springsteen phase, I went into the Dylan phase. But but yes, I think it was. It's I don't think it's intentional, but I learned some lessons from that. I feel commercially it was too Springsteen esque. Mm-hmm. And you know the lesson I learned is be careful of of how much your influences are are showing, um, because it can seem. I don't like to use this negative word, but it's, uh, I'm trying to think of it, you know, contrived is, is sure. the word. You know, I'm, I'm the first to be a critic about my own work and I'm quite happy to critique it and, and say, uh, say these things because it's my past work. Like, I can't change it. It is what it is. Other people will think it's genius, but I, th- I, I personally think it was a little bit pushed and forced. So, so you, I learned from that. And what I learned is it's great to pay respect and homage to your inspirations, um, be careful not to make it too much like a cover version of their songs um, or, or something that's just too much like them. For sure. So, and, and that's that's a really good lesson to for myself and anyone who's, who's listening or anyone who's songwriting is we have our inspirations. I mean, look at all our favourites. They were all inspired by people. I mean, Springsteen was inspired by Dylan and um, Dylan was inspired by Woody Guthrie and, and, and Elvis and, and you can if you listen you can hear those inspirations in in their music like I can hear Elvis in Springsteen um, and then I can hear when he's not doing Elvis when he's doing Dylan mm. and um, you know like he's got a voice and sometimes it's the Elvis voice and sometimes it's the Dylan voice right but he also has so much of, it, of himself in there to, to sort of bring that influence down and, and squash it to a point where he rises above it and I think that's the that's the fine line that we need to uh, achieve as artists is we have our inspirations. Everyone does even the best, but it's important to make sure that you are the larger personality in that work of art, not Mm. your hero or not your inspiration. Or or to quote Monty Python, homage, that's disgusting. Homage, you're all drunk. It's disgusting. (laughs) (laughs) Life of Brian. But yeah, I mean, um, for sure. And what I was going to say is it, I, I also think it is genre specific in a way because, you know, for instance, I'm, I'm really into death metal. 
And there's a very good band from Sweden that has the sound of uh, one album from Entombed, let's for for instance, and it's it's basically they're writing to that style. But because that was such a really influential album, that band kind of works as an entity in that style. And then, you know, there's definitely variations in that. But I think, I don't know, maybe popular music is more of a place where people are more, you know, critical of that. Mm. Like, oh, it just sounds like this, that and the other. But I mean, I've definitely got friends in bands that are very Pink Floyd-esque. Yeah. And it works for them. They're still bringing out their own personality. But if you wrote a Pink Floyd-esque song that sounded like Pink Floyd, they'd be like, well, that's great. Yeah. Whereas a popular music in the charts, people are, you're just ripping someone off. And it's like, it's, there's a, I think there's a, the, the rules are, are different for different people. Yeah. And, and because it's art and it's subjective, you do, there will be a divided um, audience. And you, you might have half the audience say, oh, it sounds just like Pink Floyd, I love it. And the other half might say, well, it sounds just like Pink Floyd. I don't like that. It just sound, it sounds just like Pink Floyd, you know? Right. So there's that divided subjective art uh, uh, critic. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. First question about your release is it looks like, unless I'm missing some, you, you did a few albums up to around 2011 and then there was a space. And maybe yeah. this is just because I haven't hit the right platform yet. Um, but after 2018, you're starting to do more singles. Is that a fair statement? Yeah, that's 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 fair. So why why the gap, and what's the the idea behind just doing singles and not doing albums? Uh, so I love two part questions. Uh, <laughs> so the first part, why the gap? I kind of went through a phase where I I guess I stepped. I put music in the back seat, which is a very unfair thing to do putting your passion in the back seat. But this is part of the rich tapestry of life and going through phases. And I went to work in the corporate world in America. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry. Yeah. Living in New York, uh, I wanted to enjoy what New York had to offer. And, mm. uh, and sometimes it's just about finances and being able to afford things. Sure. So I did that. I went and took a corporate job and enjoyed New York for seven years. And, and then I thought, Eden, why did you move here? You moved here for music. Mm-hmm. So let's get back on track. And, and that's when I, I started my exit strategy out of the corporate job world and back into uh, the full-time musician world. So that, that's why the gap. Um, I was still writing music and playing. Um, I just wasn't releasing much because, because of time. You know, just we don't have that much time in the day. So I was working full-time and... You know, who has the time to, to be a full-time musician and a full-time worker or whatever else? The second part of the question, uh, why just singles? Well, I was noticing the shift in the industry uh, with, with so much focus on streaming and almost the majority of, of sales moving to the subscription platform rather than downloads of the MP3, you know, moving from iTunes and downloading MP3s to the streaming model um, meant that there was no need for an album anymore. People didn't need to buy the whole record. And, but people who, who still go into records like me and probably you are the fans, are the real fans of these artists and music. Like we like to own a body of work because we're such a fan. Mm. And that's how the artist envisioned their work. They, work, they, in, 
visioned it as, or envisaged, I'm not sure which, which is the best word there, as a body of work and album. So let's put out an album. The majority of the audience cherry pick the songs they want to listen to because they can uh, with dynamic streaming. Interactive streaming just allows them to do that. So the industry has changed. And it made a lot more sense. And this probably goes into a little bit about the entrepreneurial aspect of what I do is I, I saw that it wasn't beneficial to put out an album once and then spend money on a, public, uh, a publicity campaign to promote that album where you have, say, 10 songs on there and they're all released at the same time. It may be one or two singles before that, right, which is sort of the usual kind of model. It's just such a waste of opportunity mm. because if you release, which is which what I've done, if you release every song as a single, spaced out by every two or three months, you have so many more opportunities to get that song out there, to get your name out there, to, to find new audience, to find a new platform, to find a new blog site, website, radio station, TV show. Um, it, it just, it makes more sense to get more publicity by releasing just singles. And then when they're all released, my plan is to release the album uh, after that. So the trick is, well, who's going to be interested in the album if they've just heard all the singles, right? That's, that's the mm, sort of the devil's advocate argument. That's a good question. Well, only the true fans or the people who, who didn't hear several of those last singles because they had busy lives and they're not, you know, A-list fans that know every movement that the artist makes, which is the majority of your audience probably. Mm. So when you release the albums, probably a lot of people haven't heard those singles. And the other, the, on, on top of that is I have remixed the album and remastered it. So it's actually all completely new mixes, which I feel obviously artistically is, is what I wanted. So the new album will, will contain new mixes of every song mm. and, and some new songs which are not on, which were not released as singles. So it's, it's basically a new package. So that's how I can justify oh, why is this album worth listening? Why is it new? Why should people listen to it? Mm -hmm. um, because it's the artist's vision. You know, it's, it's the remixes are, are a, a new vision of the fixes that you go through. It's like you live with an, a single or an album for a few months, six months, a year, and then you, you, you change your feeling about it. Think, mm, the hats could come up a bit. Maybe the kick's too strong, <laughs> you know, this kind of thing. It's about perfectionism and... Obviously, there's a point when you just say enough, mm -hmm. stop that and move on. In this model, it gives you the extra time to say, okay, I can readdress that now because I'm releasing the album, I'm releasing the album as a whole, all these songs again, remixed. So I can have this opportunity to actually tweak a few things that were bugging me. So I think it's just a win-win. And I think you'll probably find a lot of popular artists releasing uh, singles more so now than, than they are albums because of this reason. And it's catching on, I think, in the industry. It's catching on that, oh, we get way more publicity, way more um, eyeballs on our art and on, on the song when we release singles. Absolutely. Yeah. And it, it, show, it shows fans that you're active rather than just doing one album every other year and then, oh, w what happened to them? Yeah. They went away. Yeah. For your remixes, are they all your own remixes or do you have other people collaborating on mixes? 
Yeah, I have um, other collaborators on, on the mixes, especially like the last few I've done with Horse and Monkey, which are a production duo um, based in Brisbane and London, uh, both Australian friends of mine from the music industry. Mm. And uh, Chaz Guthrie, uh, the, the, the guy based in Brisbane, um, he remixed a song for Tones and I, and which did really well. And he's been remixing um, my last few tracks um, as Horse and Monkey. And, you know, his genre is that sort of pop, EDM, um, synth pop kind of dance genre. And that's not where I'm at. But I figured if he likes it, we might come up with a new, uh, a new take on my songs that might bring in some new audience. Absolutely. So, well, I mean, not even mind, it does. It brings in a new audience. The people who weren't listening to me as a rock artist might be introduced to me through the the EDM and through the horse and monkey remixes. And I suppose that, that if, if you look at acts like an artist like Iggy Pop, who, you know, came from a punk artist and is, is generally considered an indie and a punk and rock artist, a lot of his recent stuff has been remixed by a lot of EDM producers. Mm. Um, I remember in 2011, there was a, a remix by Teddy Bear or Teddy Bears um, of Punk Rocker. Okay. Uh, with, with of his song and it sounds fantastic it's a great edm pop song but it's got that iggy pop ruggedness and that edge that comes from the the rock pop the rock rock punk punk rock edge that he has so it's it's this sort of combination of genres which which i think is great and i'm sure there are a lot of uh, fans that came from that probably first heard iggy pop through teddy bear or, or through his remixes and then realized that he's such a career artist and then they might be introduced to him that way so i'm hoping that could be the case um, for me uh yeah so that that's kind of what i'm doing um, with the remixes cool um so so we've we've definitely talked about a bunch of different influences you've had so what what was it uh that you know inspired you to start playing singing you know and when actually did that start oh um I think songwriting was the first thing that I really wanted to do when I was, I started music when I was eight years old and that was the drums. The school put this memo out, or memo out to ask for anyone who was interested in, in joining the school marching band hmm. as a side drummer. Okay. And I put my hand up and I said, yeah, I'll do that. That sounds fun. So there I was in my little uniform uh, with sort of a, a like a police cap on and a blue blazer with pockets, like a military uniform with this white side drum, a white strap. And I learned drumming rudiments from my drum teacher when I was eight years old mm. and marching in the school band playing drums. And <laughs> I guess that was my, that was my first introduction to instruments. And I then studied drums, um, for the rest of my school, um, primary school and high school days. But my drumming teacher told me at the time, he said, oh, do you know Paul McCartney earns one pound every second from songwriting royalties or some, some, something like this, right? Some, um, some quote about his royalties. And, and, and I just thought, that sounds like a good industry to get into. <laughs> you know, and I, so I always remembered when I love a song, I always thought, of the songwriter and that somebody had to write this song. And so it just put a new perspective on music as an art form and all the music that I was hearing as a child, I would be thinking, Oh, 
how is this song written? And why is the writer saying these things? And this is as an eight, eight-year-old, nine-year-old, 10-year-old, right? What's attractive to a 10-year-old kid in a, in a pop song? It, it's really odd. So I remember hearing a Brian Ferry song. Mm -hmm. I think it's Let's Stick Together. I, th I think that's the title of the song. Um, I think uh, it might be a Roxy yeah. Music song. Yep. And there's this, yeah. like, like this female vocalist and she just does some sort of cat calling or uh, it's not, it's not really a cat call. It's more like a, like a scream kind of thing. And for me, that was the, the novel part of the song. Every, every time I listened to that song, I was just waiting for this, this woman to sort of give this fun kind of cat meow, <laughs> which I sound. And so it was this just fun thing and cool. And, you know, that had really nothing to do with songwriting, but more to do with uh, production. And, but in my mind, I was thinking about songwriting. It's like, oh, who's adding these little sort of fun bits into a song? And, you know, obviously it was production, but in, in my 10-year-old mind, it's, it's, part, it's part of the songwriting. <laughs> it was part of the songwriting. So after drums, I went on to teach myself piano. My mother is a piano player. Um, she learned by ear. I had two weeks of piano lessons and I thought, no, I, I don't want to do this. And then I just taught myself after that, which, which is a bit of a shame. I, I, I really wish that I'd stuck to the um, classical lessons because I think I would have been a better technical player. Mm -hmm. and, and then I taught myself guitar as well, moved on to guitar. And, and then I think I wrote my first song around 15 years old uh, on piano and I used Casio um, keyboard for the drum machine parts and stuff like that. Oh yeah, I have one of those. Yeah, 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 that were fun. Um, and I, I think it was really important for, to have tools like that for um, young people to, to find or discover things like songwriting. And you know, those, those Casio keyboards were, were, were a tool really. They were, mm -hmm. they were a tool to help you um, learn about songwriting and bring that out of you. For sure. Yeah. Awesome. The other thing I wanted to ask you, it, am I right in saying that you were signed at one point? Yes. Is that yes. you were? Yeah. So how, how did that come about? And yeah, could you, could you just share some of your experience as a signed artist? Oh uh, yeah. Um, so I, after I had a number one hit in Greece as an independent artist and I was living in the UK at the time. And so I went over to Greece to sort of check out what, what was going on and I, I made some meetings with some major labels because I thought well if I have a number one they they know who I am so let's let's go talk to them and I, I, I sat down with a couple of major labels and, and said you know I've got this new album I'm working on Electric Charge and here's a, a video for it that, that will be coming out would you be interested so EMI, EMI Music in Greece uh, were the first to come to the table and they said, yeah, we're interested in this. And they signed a licensing deal with me. So it wasn't a record deal. It wasn't a record okay. recording contract signing. It was a licensing signing, which, which I was only ever familiar with signing licensing deals. Actually, my first album released in Australia, Never Setting Sun, I signed that. I also recorded that myself on my own um, with, with, with my own budget and became the master owner of that. And then I licensed that to Collision Records Australia, who are the, uh, the label. 
but that was my first experience in really sort of working with a, a record label. And so I thought, okay, this works out pretty well because I own the masters. I license it to them for a period and for, for a cut. So I thought, well, I'll do the same thing with my next album with um, EMI Greece, which I did. So my experience on a major record label really wasn't, I suppose, a major record label artist experience because they didn't, you know, chaperone me or look after me or, or, or say, Eden, you know, these are our, this is our strategy for you. All they did was say, oh, he's got this album. We'll, we'll put it out. We'll push it, do a little bit of marketing. But they never told me what they were doing. It wasn't a close relationship okay. at all. And I don't think it actually did very did too well. However, what they did do, which I, I'm grateful for, is they helped me get onto the largest music festival in Greece, Rockwave Festival. Mm. And you know, they put me on that, or helped me helped me get booked for that. So that's one of the things a major record label can do for artists. They can they can achieve things that are really difficult for an independent to do, and that is things like getting on huge festivals with, with big, massive names. So I was billed with The Killers, Placebo, Motley Crue, Moby, Dinosaur Jr., um, whole, you know, some, some, some big bands. And, you know, that was a big break for, for me personally, mm. uh, which was a wonderful thing. So that was really my limited experience with the major label is in terms of sales, didn't really work out. There was, there was virtually nothing. But in terms of what they can do for you is like help you as a sort of a more of a management um, position. They weren't my manager, but they helped that booking. So that, that's the great thing about you know, a major label. Um, but these days, this is why I started my own label because it's, and I liken it a bit to any, uh, an actor. You know, a lot of, aspiring actors are struggling and they're not getting the opportunities that they, they need. So the smart thing to do is write your own movie. And so you can cast yourself <laughs> or, or right. And that's pretty much what I've done in the music industry is right. Start your own record label so you can push yourself as an artist. Um, so what does my own record label do for me that, that say, well, a record label is, is just really representing an artist. So it does all sorts of things, but just, it basically just facilitates the sales of, of the artist's music, right? But it can do a number of things. Um, it doesn't have to be a physical label, like pressing vinyl or CDs. It can be digital only, but it's, you know, it's in the artist's interest that we're all going to make some money from this. So this is why I started my own label. It's like, okay, um, let's start my own label. Let's market it the way a label would market it. And and put myself as the, the flagship artist. And when, once this is doing quite well, then I'll start bringing in other artists. And I suppose that's, that's the way any, any, any indie record label starts, um, which I know I'm at the very beginning of this kind of thing, so I'm still learning. But am I, am I sort of getting away from your, your question? What was... No, keep going. That's fine. What do you think having a label versus just being a DIY artist, do you think there's some kind of psychological thing from the people on the other end saying if it's just a, an artist they're, they're trying to push their own thing but if they're represented even though it's you but it's a it's it's like whatever management or, or artist label 
Do you think that gives you more of a step up in terms of the appearance? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, there's the music industry, that, as, as uh, the film industry, it's a lot about who you know and appearances. Um, and having someone representing you is just a let, let, let step up in professionalism. And I think your people regard you with more authenticity or credibility, maybe is this probably the better word, uh, when there's someone representing you, someone else is willing to put their time and energy and passion into you, then perhaps the person they're selling to is going to be interested as, as well. Like it's a really hard thing for an artist to do that themselves because it's, you know, in the, as in the industry, I think it's when the players hear it, it's just better when it comes from someone else. It's like, it's just going to be more believable when someone else is selling you than trying to sell yourself. Mm-hmm. So on that level, yeah, it's much better to have a label representing you. So that's also why it's good to start your own record label. Um, maybe I'll write a book about how to start your own record label and make it make it a uh, success. Um, but you know, I, I, I'm totally, especially at this time when the majors keep shrinking. Right, mm-hmm. over the last ten years, what have the majors done? We, we lost a couple of them. They merged. Um, they're shrinking because the independent labels are growing and because they're not needed anymore, their model, the major record label model, it doesn't work in today's uh, industry. So anyone can be a record label. Yeah. So how do you do that? And I think that's what a lot of indie artists, DIY artists are learning is what's the record label going to do for you. If maybe start your own one or sign to an independent, which is more like a collective of artists, with the similar similar mindset, and you all come together as a collective, then you can all help each other. Mm. And I think that's something I'm also interested in making. Maybe making this this label possibly a collective where I, I um, partner with a few other artists, and we say, okay, let's make this collective and bring in a lot of other people, but pool our resources. Absolutely. Yeah. Is so. Is is your uh, goal for this label to be? um genre specific or you like you'll you'll do whatever or um i think initially i would like to focus on the the artists that i find attractive and really engaging so it probably would be genre specific but i i don't want it to be genre specific um in the long run Mm -hmm. so having said that i think i'm open to all genres yeah yeah, I haven't really sort of uh, planned that out, but I'm, I knew right from the start I wanted it to be open to all genres um, because there's not really a reason for it to be sort of focused on on one genre. Yeah, I, I don't see a reason for it to be just isolated and siloed like that uh, when right. when what the kind of advertising and marketing we're doing is all, all online. It's all about the social media marketing and platforms and finding audiences on there. And if you can use that one model for one genre, you can use it for another genre. It's going to work the same, but with just different audiences with, with, with different lookalike audiences. So Mm. yeah, I I don't see a reason why it should be genre specific. Yeah. I mean, there's definitely something to be said for staying in the same kind of general area as your own music. If you're pulling resources and you want to share audiences, you know, there's definitely that side of it, but you know, there's definitely other, genres that are different from your own that 
really maybe doing stuff that's different. Like if you look at SoundCloud and the hip hop community, there's so much collaboration with the with that. Like and in the the way they release their remixes and their songs and and it, it it's kind of alien to what like mainstream rock does it's like a completely different thing so i think there's so much to be learned from different styles and different you know different communities out there yeah well i, I picked up on that when you with your, your uh podcast with agile wade my friend the toy maker um mm-hmm. and and you, you know you you both touched on the fact that when you're looking to be creative in your business look outside your genre because you know i really liked what what you guys said there is because um, if you just stay inside, you're just going to see what other people are doing inside. You're just going to be competing with them. Absolutely. Where if you look outside, you're going to get some new ideas and you're going to be really sort of breaking the mold of, of what your field is doing. And mm-hmm. the same applies with music genres, right? Yeah, totally. So the other thing I saw, you've got music in some TV commercials. Is that correct? So you want to yeah. talk a little bit about sync licensing? Um, yeah, sure. I, I've, I've had some success with that. And I'm, I'm obviously with my, my new recordings, which are a new album's worth of, of songs, um, there's a lot more that I can be pitching to. Um, you know, I've had songs on whiskey commercials, Cutty Sark Whiskey. I've had songs on um, telecommunications uh, companies and internet um, broadband companies. I've had songs in films and um what was the recent one or a a documentary from san marino um in italy and yeah sync i think is is obviously it's a one of the best avenues or best um earners for songwriters and music makers to get into because it pays so well Mm. but it's extremely i find it extremely difficult to get into I, i don't feel that i've i have a foothold in the sync industry um and so that's something that I, I'm continuing to explore. And, and that's the reason I go to these music conferences and festivals, um, sorry, music conferences, is to sit down and meet these people who are music supervisors and um, people who work in the sync industry. Uh, I, I went to France last year, went to Minam, and I sat down with a number of music supervisors. And I, it's sort of like a meet and greet, and you have five minutes to pitch a song to these guys. And I pitched uh, something called Love, um, and which is a, a recent single of mine, which is very much in the vein of the Rolling Stones and sort of retro classic rock. Mm-hmm. And th- they all were positively, they all positively reacted to it. And they, they said, oh, yeah, this sounds like if anyone wants a Rolling Stones song, I could give them this because the Rolling Stones song is going to be super expensive to, <laughs> to buy the rights to that to use in the film. And minus, I'm not going to be as expensive as the Rolling right. Stones, obviously. But if it's the same vibe as the Rolling Stones, then it's sort of like a no-brainer that they're, they're going to use, that they'll probably want to use this, my song, instead of instead of paying probably, you know, way more for the Stones song. Right. Um, you know, those kind of connections are great. Um, nothing's come of it yet, but I think you have to keep trying and... and continue to make those connections. I was on a site, Song Trader, recently. Uh, well, I've been on them for quite a while, but I feel that they're not, you know, there's something I don't, I don't trust about, about them. All my songs have often got to the final stages and they've, they've never once been selected. And it's something I've read a lot of people online about 
how they're continuing to throw money at SongTrader to get these opportunities, but they're not reaping any any rewards. And so I'm just curious about, uh, you know, the, the how ethical their, their model is. Right. But I don't want to say anything bad about it, but um, I've been on them for a couple of years, probably over over two, perhaps three years. And yeah, I, I haven't had any uh, syncs with them yet, mm. uh, which is which is strange. Uh, definitely check out, uh, talking to previous ac- episodes, definitely check out episode 90 with uh, Craig Dodge. That mm. is all about sync licensing, and he actually runs a course about it. Oh, great. So, I'll, I'll look it up. Yeah, sure. definitely. Uh, something I've been uh, pushing a lot lately uh, for my audience because I think it's really useful. Yeah, that's awesome. I'll definitely look that up. That's great. Yeah, so the, the another thing, we've already mentioned uh, Bruce Springsteen. Can you talk a bit about the members of your band that, that work with Springsteen and Paul Simon? Uh, yeah, so on this recording, I on this album um, that's coming up, um, I, I recorded with Tim Leitner, who, who was responsible for, um, well, he, he worked with Tina Turner and Billy Joel on, on albums. And so I got him as a producer and I found him through Sound Better, which is a part of Spotify's, um, where Spotify bought Sound Better. I'm not sure if you're, you, you've heard of it. And it's Sound Better is a website that, uh, that sort of put, that's a resource website that music makers can come together and find the resources and talents that they, they need to finish their projects. Okay. So I found him as a mixing engineer and producer on there. And Tim is a New York based producer. So he, and he's been around for a very long time. So he knows a lot of these top tier session musicians and players. And so, and when we were talking before we started recording the album, he said, okay, I think I know some guys who would be great for this style of music and for these songs. So let me reach out to them and see if they, see if they're interested. So Tim reached out to, Charles Giordano from the Bruce Springsteen band and asked him if he wanted to play keys on, on the album. And Charlie said yes, and he came in and played keys on the album, which was great. And also Larry Saltzman from the Paul Simon band. And Larry's been touring with Paul for God knows how long um, as a guitarist in his band. So to have these heavy hitters on my album was um, such a, a big plus for me, I suppose in the studio to have work on my songs and, and play the parts on and help me sort of achieve that vision that I was, I was looking for, the team and I were going for. It's just amazing. And I can't be more pleased with the work that Larry and Charlie have done on this album. Um, so it, it, when you, I guess when you find yourself working with this caliber of, of musicians, you really understand why they are the best of the best. And I was just completely humbled and blown away by their, the level of professionalism that these guys showed, not just not just a technical ability um, as musicians, but professionalism. They're not there to waste anyone's time or money. They come in with ideas. They come in, they know the parts back to the front. They come in with a few ideas of their own just in case they, they you know, I wanted to try something different. Mm. They are just ready. And it was after you've, I guess after you've got the, to that level, it's like, it's a different, you don't want to go back. It's like, well, I don't want to then spend, I don't want to go back and spend money on hours in the studio where people are still working out their parts or trying out different things. It's, it's like, well, it's, it's, I don't know. I, it was an amazing experience for me. And 
I will I will hire them again for sure uh, in a heartbeat. Huh. Do Do you always record um, in a studio setting, or do you do you ever collaborate with anyone? You know, online file sharing and and record that way. Um, for the remixes, we did a little bit like that um, collaboration, like online, but. All of my studio albums to, to date have been in, in a studio and sort of a, a, a set amount of time in the studio. Um, on this one, we did it over many, many weekends. So it took sort of six months to make this record. And mm. so um, like on the weekends, I would go into Union Square in Manhattan and, and record this with Tim and Larry and Charlie and we'd come in and, and sort of get together and record. Uh, I know it can be done online, um, and certainly during the pandemic, uh, it's probably a forced way to do things. I did do a a live recording uh, for a festival in Sweden a few months back called Live at Heart Sweden, and I got Larry Salzman from the Paul Simon Band in to play live with me on that, so he was part of the band. So what we did, we actually recorded our parts on a, on a Zoom call like this, but it wasn't technically live. We recorded them to a track and then they would send their parts to me individually and I would line them, sync them all up to the song um, and, and just sync everything up to the click track and their video as well. So it's basically a video performance of each band member performing the song synced up together so it looks like we're all together in our individual rooms but playing live. But we're not actually playing live, but to the audience, that's the way it appears. Which was, that was a fun project. And, you know, in, during COVID times, certainly one way to go forward with producing your own concert. Yeah, for sure. Uh, you know, a lot of people have been doing this. And, and I think it's, it's a substitute way, substitute for a live gig, which I feel, you know, there are pluses in it. And obviously it's not a, live, a real life gig and you don't get that experience, but... I think it's the second best thing that we have. Yeah, was it? I, I may have been trolling your Facebook. Did I see a, a thing about a, a a concert with Zorb Balls? Was that your Facebook feed I saw on? Uh, I don't. With who? I don't think it's a who. Zorb so, Balls. I don't know. I I no no Zorb the bit the inflatable Zorb Balls. Oh yeah, so I did. I posted that it was a Flaming Lips concert. Um, oh and okay. They, they did this. What I what seems like a, a publicity concert where all the audience were in these inflatable balls and so were the band members. Hmm. I mean, it looks crazy. And I don't think it's the way forward for live music, but it was uh, certainly an, an interesting experience to see that happen. <laughs> can't, can't imagine the uh, the sound quality in, inside of that's that great. you got right. this cushion of air. <laughs> right. I think not, there are so many... Good. Yeah, there are so many cons with that um, that idea. Like, who's responsible for cleaning inside those balls <laughs> after after the show? Yeah, especially if there's alcohol involved. That can't. <laughs> oh man, that can't can't end well. That would get messy. Yeah, so I I, I get to a point in my uh, my episodes where I like to ask a round of non quickfire questions, and hopefully in 2021 I'll have a, an actual jingle for it. We'll see. So the first one is, oh, what what is one piece of advice you would give a musician looking to make a living from music? I'd say listen to your listen to your own ideas, because as a musician, you're creative already. 
you have uh, unique ideas, listen to those and make them happen. That's that's the first thing off the top of my head. But I have I should have a lot more than this. I had um, hmm. I had a list of things that I have a, of advice. But oh no, I've got it. Surround yourself with a team. Um, I think this is better advice. Is because as a DIY musician, you need other people. You can't do it on your own, um, completely on your own. You just you just cannot do it. Surround yourself with a team. You need money for uh, paying this team to do their jobs. So however you, you can fund this, that's, that's fine, but do understand that it's, it needs funding. Um, you will need to pay your team to do it, but you will need, but basically find a team that do great jobs for you. Find a booking agent, find a manager, find um, a marketer, find a graphic designer, find a video director, and get these people together. And once you all have them together and all working for you, things will start to expand and, and roll along and, and grow. Awesome, thank you. Hopefully, that's good advice. What uh, what one resource could be a book, podcast, blog? Would you recommend to artists looking to be successful? Um, one resource. So I've already mentioned Sound Better to find mm -hmm. uh, collaborators. I, I do recommend that. So as I've used it, and I found Tim, who is you know an established iconic music producer, on there. I guess that's one resource you could you could use. I, I also recommend, I'm just going to cheat a little bit and say the festivals and the conferences around the world, the music conferences that used to be like brick and mortar con um, mm. conferences are now sort of online conferences. And they often have weekly or monthly um, webinars. I recommend that you sign up for them and just listen to what they have to say because often you will learn something from them that you didn't think of or didn't know what was going on. Um, Indie Week from Canada are one of those conferences which I recommend sort of checking out. Cool, thank you. What significant negative experience have you overcome and what did it teach you? Uh, I think when someone in the industry rubs you the wrong way or, or does you wrong in some way, usually it's financial, usually they'll you know, charge you for something that they won't do. Mm. I think the way to learn that is be be careful of why you were attracted to this business relationship uh, in the first place. Was it from desperation or was it because you just didn't have any knowledge and you trusted someone because you were a very trusting person? Mm. <laughs> you know, what was the reason that you got into bed uh, with this um, industry partner and sort of be wary of, of doing those things again. We as humans often follow our own habits so we will do these things again and we wonder why we're always getting burned and so you have to analyze your behavior and your your decision making process so the, the negative experience is when someone burns you and this is going to happen obviously in the music world a lot is you know try not to to get all aggravated and, and think about oh how am i exact vengeance on this person but chalk it up as a lesson of what to avoid and maybe think about things from their end. Like maybe you're seeing it from a very negative point of view and maybe you feel that you were burnt and they completely fooled you. Mm -hmm. um, but maybe that's not the case from their end. I'm giving them the benefit of the doubt, but I'm not saying they didn't take their money from you or whatever is happening. But, but there are, there's always another perspective. So the reason I'm saying is, is this because you don't want to get jaded or bitter in this industry, which is very easy to do. 
because after you get burnt so many times and a lot of failures and and it it can happen i, I think my, the recommend how i learned from it is is don't take it too seriously you know everyone's basically in the same game of life just trying to get ahead i'm not i'm not saying that's an excuse for ripping people off or um, fooling people but i guess by not taking it too seriously you, you can then build a character that is resilient and able to go on and combine that with the lessons that you learn from maybe don't trust this type of person again or or uh, maybe seek other ways that you can achieve these goals um, then by going down this path and, and putting in money where it mm. you know where nothing comes of it sure so I think when you combine the the lesson that you've learned plus with that character that you're building of yourself you can go on with um, with more armor mm-hmm. to go on with your career uh, you, you probably have seen this as well as as much as I have is it can be disheartening in the music industry when you're getting knockback after knockback after knockback. And this has happened to me just like any other artist. It's how do we go on from that? It's very difficult to pull, you know, pull your boots up and love you by your bootstraps and, and continue because you've been burnt so badly. But I think that's, that's the key is uh, build a strong character. Don't take it too seriously, laugh it off and learn from your lessons. Awesome. Thank you. Flipping that question around, what major positive experience has given you the encouragement to follow this journey? Uh, yeah, fortunately, I think these are really important things. I think every artist needs support and encouragement um, to continue. So I, I've had, I, I remember this one fan email I got back in the 90s, and it was from another country. Uh, I think it's from, I can't remember where they were. I think they were the US and I was in Australia at the time. And there was just a fan email just saying how much they enjoyed my music. And that was so important for me to get at the time because it was one of those times where, you know, it didn't seem like anything good going for me. I didn't feel good about any, any achievements um, or maybe the achievements I felt that I was getting weren't, what I wanted or expected or was, was really reaching for. And although we're making small steps, they, they're important to focus on those small steps. Like that one fan email really helped me continue, continue on. And you know, that since then there've been, there've been more emails like that and more um, comments from, from audiences and fans that, that, have, that are really into your music. So, and I think that's the reason we continue. It, and the thing is about that is you don't need to be a, a world-famous artist to, be con- to continue to make music. Maybe you are a bedroom artist and you have like 10 fans who, who really like what you're doing. And maybe that's enough to do it. Um, is it a career? Maybe not, but it, it, it might be a, something that's really important to you. So it's, so it's just as worthwhile. Right. Yeah, I, I guess I, I, I just want to sort of mention how important that um, support and encouragement is from, from anyone. If you are a person out there and you, you have, uh, you, you are a fan of, of an independent artist, please tell them so. Oh, I forgot. Recently I've, I've got a PayPal um, contribution from a Japanese fan and it was quite a hefty contribution. I, I won't say how much, but it was ridiculously large. And so 
when that happens, you realize, oh my God, there are people out there who really believe in what I'm doing. They know that I'm struggling. Um, here's, and here's something that can right. help. And it's something that they can obviously afford, you know, um, to, to do that. And that was just, it was a beautiful thing to happen. I think as an artist, you have to remember there are people out there listening and you might not always know how grateful they are, mm. but they are. You know? Fantastic. Final question is what does music mean to you? I remember one definition of music. Let's see if I can recall what it was, um, which I felt resonated with me. And I felt, yeah, that's, that's what music means to me. I, I can't recall exactly what it was. But I'll, I'll try to paraphrase it. So music is the reflection of how we perceive life. And, you know, I'm, I don't believe that music from, is superior to any other art form. It's just different. Mm -hmm. You know, I love film. I'm a big film fan. And I, and I love film, watching film. And I love um, how films are made. I'm a big fan of film as an, as an art form. I'm also a big fan of music. They, they are different and they, they, they both do similar things. I think film like music does reflect um, life to us and shows us um, a, about storytelling. Music does that too, but in the form of, of music and it's just, it's, it's like, it's so unique to take these frequencies, put them in a pattern that changes our emotions, mm -hmm. someone's emotion, the listener's emotions. And it's a design pattern. So we're designing these frequencies together in a pattern with a language of uh, a vocal language with poetry and combining this with these frequencies. It's, it's, it's cross, it's what, what's, what do you call it? Um, a cross medium. Sure. Okay. Really, you know, cause it's, it's both, language and music and so with, with with language and music we get song so i guess i'm talking about song really uh, because music in its without the vocal is in its own right an art form it's it's a wonderful it is a I, oh someone said it's a it's it's a friend talking to you mm -hmm. uh, which is a good definition of what music is um it's a trusted friend which i, I definitely agree with yeah absolutely and, and yeah we could probably talk about this for, for days oh, right yeah, for but sure. uh, yeah awesome I'll, I'll leave it at that it's a trusted friend cool yeah so where can people find out about you where can they find their music your music and where can they get in touch i'd say edenjames.com um sign up to my newsletter um it's a monthly newsletter but i don't haven't been on the ball as much lately um, definitely follow me on Spotify and and on um, YouTube and Instagram. Um, I do have a new album coming out uh, when you hear this. Um, it's called All the Good Blank Are Taken. And yeah, please follow, follow me, um, share my playlists, share my posts. And if you like it, yeah, sign up to those new, that newsletter and I'll, I'll, send you some, I'll send you some merch um, like this coffee mug, Eden James, old school rock and roll. Nice. And I have band t-shirts, which with the same um, design on it as well. Awesome. At the end of the uh, episode, I like to play a song from the person I'm interviewing usually. So which song you look, which song would you like to play? Let's play the original. Let's, no, let's play something called Love. 
the the red album the original single okay. not the remix yeah. cool will do um yeah this has been great great conversation really appreciate you coming on and uh sharing your sharing your experiences with everyone and your your, your tips and um advice continued success and thank you so much um thank you simon uh, it was a pleasure thanks so much for inviting me on um really glad to be on here and talking with you thanks again thank you so much for listening I'd really appreciate it if you would leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast platform, as this really helps get the word out about the podcast so that other musicians can benefit from the awesome knowledge that my guests are sharing. The more the musicians community collectively learns, the stronger we will all become. A rising tide lifts all ships. Keep pushing the needle and be excellent to each other. This is Eden James with Something Called Love. Oh